Hello and welcome to the podcast, What I Wish I Knew as a Newly Qualified Teacher, with me, Jeremy Crook. This is a show where my guests and I will share with you our experiences, both good and bad, of life as a new teacher. I'll be talking to those new to teaching as well as those who've spent a lifetime educating children. And one thing you can be sure of, they will all have something interesting and informative to say on the art of being a great teacher. Today, I'm talking to Jean Crook. Recognise the surname? Yes. Well, we're related. She is my amazing mother. And though she is now 90 years old, don't think for one moment that what she has to say is irrelevant to teaching today. Great teachers from any era would be great teachers today. So we're immensely fortunate to have the chance to listen to Jean as she shares her 57 years of teaching with us. That's right, 57 years in the classroom. Wow. Mom, thanks for talking to me today. I know we've talked endlessly about education for years, but I'm really looking forward to hearing about the early years of your career. Hello, darling. Well, it's nice to be here, and I hope what I say will be of use or some Yeah, of course it will. Of course it will. You know I've said that endlessly. It's not what you do, it's the way that you do it, and uh, and you've always done it brilliantly. So tell us, mm-hmm. what was it about teaching that made you love it so much that you kept doing it for 57 years? Well, I drifted into it, really, and it started with my love of the subject, music, and that was what kept me going. And then eventually I loved the interaction between teacher and pupil and the relationships I made. I know that you still have pupils from decades ago who regularly come and see you, don't I, you? So, so clearly you formed great relationships. Yes, I hope so. They're very valuable to me. And it means a lot when a pupil I taught 50 years ago comes every year to see me. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I think that's a great testament to you, isn't it? So did you always want to be a teacher? No, not really. I drifted into it. I didn't know what I was going to do after higher school certificate, which was what the A-levels were then. And my English teacher suggested I applied to a training college, which I did very late. So I had to go through the clearinghouse and... um. I got into a college, which is no more, St Gabriel's in Camberwell, London. Did you enjoy your time at St Gabriel's? I enjoyed some of it. Our teaching practices were quite hard in Camberwell and and the East End of London, but it it knocked the corners off me and I made great (laughs) relationships. Can you remember, what about your interview to get into teacher training? What did you have to do in those days? Well, we went before the principal. We had a medical and I think we had a three-hour exam. Did you? I think we had to write an essay. And I know then we had to walk on the stage and we were each given something to do, public speaking. Oh, right. And I had to open a faith, which was quite handy because my father was a vicar and I'd seen lots of people open garden faiths. (laughs) I did a two-year course, which was the usual thing then. And if you showed ability in a certain subject, you could go on 
and I was awarded another year at Trinity College of Music. I had to do an entrance exam and I had to do um, a practical exam. And the principal said, what else can you do apart from playing the piano? And I said, well, I can speak French. And he got a book down from the bookcase and it was about Napoleon and it was full of dates. These read nerve songs. I can't forget, remember now. And I could rattle them off. And he said, well, if your music is as good as your French, we'll have you. And I got in. And was that a good time at, oh, at, at Trinity? It was the best year of my life. It wasn't a teacher training course. It was purely to develop one's personal musical skills. Oh, uh, right. And it was a magic course, and I was brokenhearted when I left. But leave you had to. Let's go back to your training when you were at St Gabriel's. What were the school practices like? Well, they were much shorter. The first one was a fortnight, and then subsequently, in the following two terms, we did three weeks in each term. How did you get into schools? Well, we went on the bus or the underground, and um, we had to take our specimens with us. Now, For example, um, if you were doing um, a nature study lesson and you were doing it based on animals, then you had to take the animals in, a rat, a mouse. Um, I took a white rabbit in to um, Dunwich Junior School and it was a magic lesson. That was, was it? The, the first lesson I ever taught. I don't think I ever lived up to that standard again, but <laughs> the children were entranced with this beautiful white rabbit and um, I got a very high commendation for that lesson. Did you? So what did you do with the rabbit? I put him on the desk on the teacher's table and we went over his anatomy and what he ate we gave him carrots and lettuce and various things and the children stroked him and then we made up a story about a rabbit the lesson went well. I was amazed because I was very nervous with this ferocious lecturer <laughs> monitoring me. But not a ferocious rabbit. He was lovely. He was the star of the day. And of course, I had to carry him in a box on the underground from Camberwell to Dunwich. As, as we did, I, I took frogs. Did you? Yes, I, where did you get all these animals from? They were kept in the in the um, lab. They what were, at they college? Were, yeah, they were kept specifically for teaching practice. Right. So we had rats, rabbits, tadpoles, frogs, and I guess the children had never seen things like rabbits, had they? Living in the middle of London. Well, they'd probably seen them in pictures, but I don't suppose. Yeah, but not in real life. No, so. It was a magic world for them. Yeah, because it's still magic even now. Of course, children have much more exposure now, don't they, to, to animals and living things. Yes. And, and we often used to take them into class. But uh, yeah. 70 years ago, I guess that was quite a surprise yes, for and them and very motivating. There wasn't television. There was no visual aspect to their lives. You had a book and that was it. So these live specimens were wonderful. You didn't have any frogs escape on the underground then? No, they escaped in the classroom. Did they? <laughs> um, they were jumping all over the place and the lecturers were very strict and checked that if you took out 26 baby frogs, 
you had to return 26 baby frogs. And I managed it with the live animals, but I missed getting a triangle back. I remember I had to pay for a new triangle, which I lost. Did you? What happened to that then? I don't know. It just sort of disappeared, whether one of the children pocketed it. That's amazing, really. You can get the frogs back, even if you couldn't get the triangle back. (laughs) One of the schools I went to, it was one of those big, tall, square London blocks with the assembly halls in the middle and the classrooms and lavatories round the edge. I know I took them into the playground for PE because we had to teach everything, not just our specialist subject. And they all threw the balls over the the railings into the road. What, deliberately? Yes. (laughs) And when you've got 39-year-olds doing it, that was a, a... pretty awful lesson and what did you do to get well, them to get the balls back or to stop doing it i think a teacher came to help me and went and fetched the balls and then i sat them down in the playground and we did stationary exercises right and how did they respond to that well i think they were bored i mean i can't say all my lessons were good because um they varied according to the the children I had, their ages, and and I was very inexperienced. And I expected the children to be little angels. Um, And, of course, they weren't. Yeah, that's uh, that's always a steep bit of learning, isn't it, for any new teacher or any trainee teacher. Once you introduce children into the lesson, it all gets a bit more complicated. (laughs) On paper, it looks very good, and and it doesn't quite work out that way. Well, exactly. I had a little boy called Fred, who always sat underneath the desk and he would never come out. I never did succeed in getting Fred from under the desk. Yeah, I had a boy like that in one of my schools who who was had a very traumatic background. His parents had both been jailed, actually, because uh, they'd abused him. And uh, there mm. were some days when he just couldn't cope with life and mm. he'd, he'd sit under the desk and I'd say, are you all right under there? And he'd say, yeah, I'm fine. I said, do you want to come out? And he'd say, no, I don't. I said, well, come out when you feel like it then. I said, do you want me to come and sit under there with you? And sometimes he'd say yes and I'd go and sit under the table with him for a few minutes. <laughs> and sometimes he'd say, no, don't bother. I'll, I'll be all right. I'll come out soon. Yeah, and yeah, uh, and yes. he was such a poor little chap. He'd, he'd been so abused and... Uh, yes. And you just can't do enough for those children, can you? But when you've got 30 or 35 others all demanding attention Mm. and you've got a lecturer breathing down your neck because the lecturers weren't terribly friendly. They were super critical. Were they? And I felt they used to come in and look for your faults. I used to be terrified of my lecturers coming in. Yeah, that's no good, is it? Because... What what you want to learn from people, you want to use their expertise, don't mm. you, to get better. Mm. And being mm. terrified of them doesn't help you develop, does it? I got through it just about. Yeah, good. Well, it sounds like you were amazingly prepared, <laughs> you know, with your frogs and your, and your mm. rabbits. Were you always that prepared? No, I was forgetful. Every Tuesday, we had to go out as a group, say eight or nine from the music group, and we had to do a lesson, take it in turns, to do a demonstration lesson while the other students and lecturers watched. And I'd quite forgotten it was my turn, and I was on the way to a school with the music group, and they said, what are you doing today, Jean? I said, oh, is it me? 
And they said yes. And on the way, I made up a story about a little violin (laughs) sitting in the attic all on his own. I happened to play the violin and I got a box of assorted percussion instruments. And um, the little violin played a very sad tune, which said, I'm lonely. And the triangle, who was also abandoned in the attic, um, joined in as well. And eventually they found all these little instruments, sad and abandoned in the attic, and they all played together. The lesson actually fizzed. And, um, Isn't that interesting? That happens sometimes, doesn't it? When you're not very well planned and you haven't microanalyzed everything you're going to do, and the lesson just flies. Yes. Well, it was luck was on my side, and um, all the students were marvelous. They all joined in and helped, and um, the tutor was impressed and said that was a star. Yeah. Well, great. Were, were the tutors <laughs> always impressed? No. I had a very difficult class in a big London junior school in a rough area, and my lecturer told me to do the William Teller Overture with accompaniment from various percussion instruments, triangles, bells, drums, cymbals, and the children didn't really do it very well. So she said she would come in and show me how it was done. And the children went absolutely wild. (laughs) And they all ran and locked themselves in the lavatories, banging the instruments. And the William Tell Overture was still pounding away on the gramophone. Her answer was, now, Miss Haste, that is how not to do a lesson. So looking back, my lesson was better than hers. And did she say anything or did she just get hot and bothered? She got dreadfully hot and bothered. Her silly straw hat was tilting wildly on her head and and she really panicked and she could not manage these children. And eventually the headmistress came in and dealt with it. And the lecturer was meant to be in control. Yes, she, she came to show me how to do the lesson. So I felt really sorry for her, but I think she'd been used to teaching students, you see. There's nothing like putting children in, is there? I've had a few occasions when I've had college lecturers coming to show students on teaching practice how to do it, and it hasn't always been good. Hasn't it? So take heart. Yeah, exactly. Take heart because it's difficult. And uh... and you'll always get a dud lesson. Yeah, always. Like, right up until the end of my career, I could say I was, I didn't get many, but I was still getting dud lessons. Yeah, well, everyone does. It doesn't mean they're terrible, does it? It doesn't mean that people don't learn anything. It just means it didn't go as you hoped. And I think that's the important thing to remember, isn't it? Always. Just because a lesson hasn't been perfect doesn't mean children haven't learned stuff still. Was your training course challenging apart from the lesson observations? It was extremely challenging. It was a two-year course. We had to do all the subjects that you would teach in a junior school, as well as philosophy, psychology. I wasn't an all-rounder, and I failed my art. Oh, we had to have... We had a three-hour art lecture every week. And then at the end of the two years, we had to have an art exhibition. And I failed. And how did your lecturers respond to that? 
Well, she said, you're just not good enough, are you, Miss Haste? No. Your work is very poor. I had no artistic talent at all. So you passed enough of the course to qualify. Yes, that was the only thing I failed in. It's interesting, isn't it, when these lecturers uh, tell you you're not very good at stuff, because when we work with children, we try to find something, don't we, positive Mm, to say. mm, Yes. She personally didn't like me. I don't know why. And curiously enough, for the final art exam, the students chose me as their model. She said, I really don't know why they've chosen you, Miss Haste. But um, I felt in a way I'd got even with her. <laughs> yeah, well, quite right too. I get very frustrated with people who uh, who criticise others without trying to help them move forwards. Yeah. Do you remember my when I was at secondary school and my final art report said, slapdash <laughs> and careless, but tries hard. <laughs> so I think we're cut out of the same mould. So let's go to your first job. What was your first job like? Well, my first job was in Ipswich in um, a secondary modern girls' school. And I was second in the music department. And I also had to teach English and associated subjects, history. We used to do projects which included geography, history and English. And I had two years there and I learned a lot from the head of music, who was a very skilled cathedral organist. Oh, right. And he used to be a visiting um, music teacher, and I learned an awful lot of him. And in my first term, I had a major inspection. No, did you? So no different to now then? But the, um, the inspectors came in for a fortnight. A fortnight. And would pop into your lesson whenever without warning. Right. And my result was from the inspector promising. Promising, that's good. Can you remember what the lesson was? Yes, it was a singing lesson, and I was teaching Where the Bee Sucks, There Lurk I, a song by Thomas Arne and words by Shakespeare. And I'd forgotten the music. No, no. I'd left the music at home. I thought it was in my case. And I went to look and it wasn't. Fortunately, I could extemporise. And the examiner was very critical of my accompaniment (laughs) and said it it should have been by Thomas Arne, the composer. He said it was um, rather a slapdash rendition. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from that, I showed promise. Oh, well, that's good. What was your head teacher like? Brilliant. Really? Absolutely brilliant. Miss Cook. Absolutely dedicated to the school. She worked herself to a standstill. She was a most brilliant teacher. And she came in to show me how to teach poetry. And it was electrifying. Really? The only thing is you couldn't keep that up for eight lessons a day because the energy she expended and the involvement She must have been exhausted after an hour of this. The girls were alike. They loved it. Right. I I think that's a really good point you make there, isn't it? For for young teachers, you can can have this real high energy level for some lessons and really give it everything because Mm. you feel that the lesson demands that. Mm. But you can't do it every lesson and you can't do it day after day, week after week. No, you have to pace yourself. 
Yeah, so there are there are peaks and troughs, aren't there, mm. in your energy levels and in the amount of effort you make. Yes. And and the secret to being a great teacher is to make sure in every lesson they're learning something. But it can't be brilliant every lesson. I think that's really important to understand early in your career. Yes, there has to be um, periods where you're shown to be a caring, involved teacher, but you can't always set the children alight. No, that's definitely right. So that was, you were in secondary schools then for your first job? Yes. And, um, and when did you start teaching primary? Well, I had three children in under three years. And I managed to get a little job at a prep school teaching music two mornings a week. Oh, right. And after two terms there, the head said she had a vacancy and would I like a full-time job. And with great difficulty, um, because I was so hard up, I took the job and managed to get my two small sons into nursery school. Yes, I remember that well. Yeah. Corporation Road Nursery. That's, right. yes. That's it. I was very happy there, but their holidays didn't coincide with state school holidays. Right. And I got then, after two years, a job at Lawford Mead Junior School, where I stayed for four years. And was that good? Yes, I learned a lot and I enjoyed teaching primary children. And then a job came up as a music specialist in a senior school and I was tempted to apply and I got the job and I stayed there for 17 years. Yeah, I should think they were sorry to see you go, though, weren't they, at Lawford Mead? Because you did great musical performances. I was, I was, I was told if I came back, I would eventually be the deputy head. Oh, so why didn't you take that up? Um, I rather felt I wanted to explore music a bit. I wanted to use music more. Right. It was one of those crunch times. Was I right to do it? Or should I have gone on and become a primary head? I don't know. I... No, well, you can never know. You just have to go with what you feel at the time, I think, don't you? And And that's another really important thing in your career. You just choose and you think, at this point, I want to do that, mm. don't you? And that's how it is. And I, I, it gave me more money. And as we were dreadfully hard up, um, I went for the job which paid better. Yeah. I remember when, when I joined Law for Me, and I think I was only there a year when you were there. Mm. But uh, and, and we did a performance of The Poisoned Apple. Oh, yes. One year I decided that with, a third, with the fourth year that I would do some drama and music, which they themselves created. And I would put them in a situation where they could create scenes and music for themselves. And we gradually built up this whole school drama on Snow White. And the children wrote a lot of the music and um, improvised a lot of the drama and speech. And it was quite successful, wasn't it? Well, it was massively successful. From my position as a rabbit, <laughs> I, I don't remember too much about it, but I do remember uh, sewing on a furry ball onto my tights <laughs> so that I could be a rabbit. But it got very well received, didn't it? Yes, it was nice that the whole school, every child was involved. And we did it in the round in the school hall. And we had a little orchestra, recorders and triangles and drums and the odd clarinet, I remember. And... Um, it was one of the strengths of my teaching 
that I could get children to improvise and create a whole work with a bit of prodding. And um, and children have so much latent creativity. Yeah, they do. And, 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 and sadly, we're losing a bit of that in schools now, I think. I do get concerned now about having this this curriculum that is a right-wrong curriculum mm. instead of something that nurtures great thinking and great mm. creativity and great imagination. And well, a lot of that's being squashed out. You were obviously very skilled at doing that, much more skilled than most teachers. Well, the 60s, actually, the inspectors used to come around and see me working and they used to say, well, this is the height of creativity. Mm. And they encouraged it, maybe at the expense of losing skills in some other things. I don't know. Yeah, but it's about balance, isn't it? Mm. It's not about saying that you have to have only this or you have to have only that. It's about saying that that we can still have great literacy skills, but we can still have this great creativity because as you said with the poisoned apple children were writing the script children were writing the songs it Mm. wasn't as if they weren't using their literacy skills Mm. to be able to write a play actually your level of comprehension of language has to be pretty high doesn't it yes well i eventually used the experiences of the poisoned apple when i wrote um my thesis for my drama qualification based entirely on the approach that the children, you give them an idea and they explore it Mm. and you draw from that. Yeah. So when you did your drama qualification, you had to have someone come and assess you then, didn't you? Yes. You've had quite a lot of involvement with inspectors, haven't you? Um, Because even when you were in your 70s, didn't you have an inspector come and and watch you once when you were teaching at Ingotstone? It was just at the beginning of these, what do you call these inspections you have now? Blooming ridiculous, I call them, but um, yeah. You know, when um, a major inspection. That's it, no notice, they just turn up. And um, the headmaster said, you're first on the list. I was a visiting teacher. So how old were you then? Oh, I must have been 70, 78, I think. <laughs> Fly me. Late 70s. And, and he said you were first up. Yes, and the, ins- the ins- inspectors came in. and um, What were you doing? I was doing music, an hour's music with top juniors. Right. And they were absolutely wonderful, these children at Ingatestone. So I did a variety of things, music, movement. We didn't have many instruments. And I told them about, it was the anniversary of Brahms' birthday, I think. And so I played them some Brahms and told them a story about him. And then we finished the lesson with great balls of fire. <laughs> did you? <laughs> yeah. And the inspector said, oh, I did enjoy that. Can we do it again so I can join in? And so we finished the lesson, great balls of fire, with the examiner singing at the top of her voice. Oh, brilliant. And, and the school came out of the inspection well? Yes, they did. I hope great balls of fire got a mention in the final report. <laughs> so we're going to have to come to an end now. What's your final advice then? What, what would you say to an inexperienced teacher or a trainee? Because 
you know I've said to you many times before, once you're a great teacher, you're always a great teacher. So I know you always say, oh, yes, but I couldn't do it now. But you're 90 now, so that might have something to do with it. But what would you tell an inexperienced teacher or a trainee about the things that you still think are most important? Well, first of all, you're going to learn your job slowly. It isn't happen overnight. No. It's, a, it's a long process. The things that go well, remember them and use them. And above all, have a good relationship with your pupils. And I think my teaching, looking back, I had good relationships with the children, not with every child. Yeah, but you can't with every child, can no. you? It, it can't be brilliant with every child, no. but it can be good enough with every yes. child. I loved my subject. I was passionate about music. I was always enthusiastic and I was a trier. And I realized the last day I was teaching, I was still learning how to do the job. Yeah, and, and that never stops, does it? No, and you'll get failures, and you'll get black days, but you have to balance that with the good ones. Yeah, and and you've had lots of those, haven't you, for sure? Yes, and I'm very heartened when pupils come back and still come back and see me and say that they enjoyed my lessons. But, of course, I didn't win over every child. No, but you can't win them all over, can you? They can't all love being taught by you. <laughs> But they can they can all appreciate you, can't they? I think so. And I tried. I always tried. You certainly worked unbelievably hard, yes, didn't I, you? I can remember that. I did work very, very hard. But then you have to. Yeah, you have to to be good at anything, don't you? Yes. It's not and just teaching. Teaching's it, a hard yes. job, but there's a lot of hard jobs and... And if you work really hard and have the right attitude, know that you're doing great things for the children you're mm. teaching, then that's a heck of a reward, isn't it? Yes. You get quite a lot of knocks. I've had bad days balanced by good days. And looking back over my career, um, on the whole, I would say it has given me more pleasure than grief. Yeah, good. What a great place to stop that is. I've had more pleasure than grief. So thanks so much for that. <clears throat> Everything you've said resonates with life for new teachers today. I don't think it's surprising. I'm going to say it again. Great teachers are great teachers, whatever era they're in. So, so thanks so much for sharing those memories. I don't know if you know, but there's a Plato quote. I often think about you when I think of this quote. And he said, wise men, and I'll add, or women, speak because they have something to say. Fools speak because they have to say something. And what's great about you is you only speak when you've got something really worthwhile to listen to. And you've certainly shared that with us today. So thank you so much for that. My pleasure. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please share it with your friends or anyone who knows Jean. We'll keep you updated on what's to come and more on Twitter at WhatNQT. Until then, I'm Jeremy Crook, and this has been the latest podcast from What I Wish I Knew as a New Teacher. <laughs>